Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Gentle villagers, it is I, Sir Topaz of Melaby. I am a knight of great virtue, and on the morrow I will do battle with the giant Oliphant. But on this night do I ask for shelter and succor for myself and my squire, Honeycomb. Do you have any nutmeg? Silence, Honeycomb, thou cheeky varlet, for it is unmannerly to ask the villagers for a thing so precious as a spice from the far-off Malaku Isles, where the midnight dew beats up on the leaves of that precious tree whose fruit is the nutmeg, which we grate onto our eggs and into our ale. Yeah, but do they have any? Villagers, please forgive my squire. We have traveled long and under strange and distant stars, for I would conquer the love of the elf queen who lives in... The thing is, if I don't get some nutmeg pretty soon, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Proud knight, methinks your squire has a problem. She doesn't have a problem. She can give up nutmeg anytime she wants to. No, I can't. Yes, you can. Verily, shut up and let me handle this. In sooth, this doth seem like classic enabling. Right? This came up in group this week. The counselor said, what you allow is what will continue. My shrink says, sometimes the way to solve a problem is to stop participating in it. What is this? Some kind of Pinterest quotation page? I'm a knight. This is my squire. We need to fight a giant. Can we stop with all this 12-step mumbo-jumbo? I would totally do anything for some nutmeg, if you get my drift. Wrong thing to say! Ow! You know what? Let's just forget giants and elf queens and acts of virtue and courage. Instead, let's just sit around talking about interpersonal dynamics, because that apparently is what the world is these days. While we're doing that, um, does anybody have some nutmeg? Just a, just a little bit. To smooth out my mood? Meanwhile, the guy who did the Nutomatic infomercial, Colin McEnroe. Yes, actually, nutmeg, one of the many things you're going to learn about nutmeg today is that it's often been regarded, and maybe even still is in certain quarters, as a little bit more than something you grate over your eggnog. It um, could be as intoxicating as the eggnog itself under certain circumstances. But there's a lot more that we're going to learn about nutmeg in terms of its history, its value, its toxicity, and yes, its intoxicating properties. Uh, joining me in studio right now, uh, and, and kind of the reason that we wind up doing doing a show about nutmeg, is Ron Jenkins, professor of theater at Wesleyan University. He wrote a play, Islands, the Lost History of the Treaty that Changed the World. And it just goes without saying that that treaty involved a source of nutmeg. It was performed in April at Wesleyan and the Indonesian consulate in New York City. And I think it's eventually going into the same theater where ha Hamilton is right now. But it's going to be performed first. In, they want to try it out in Indonesia. You know, and then, you know, obviously just get some of the bugs out of it and then bring it into Broadway. So um, he'll be joining us in just a second. Uh, also, a little bit later, you're going to hear from um, we can hear some from somebody who and don't try this at home. Uh, but he did attempt to find out what happened if you ingested, shall we say, too much nutmeg. He went on a nutmeg bender and it wasn't pretty. Uh, we'll also be talking uh, about 
the actual toxic properties of nutmeg, and that's why you shouldn't try this at home. So you didn't know. You didn't, it just it sits up there in your spice cabinet, and you hardly ever use it. All right, but one of the other reasons to do a show like this, obviously, is that Connecticut is the so-called nutmeg state. It's kind of the so-called everything. It's got all kinds of different nicknames, but um, nutmeg state, and we're nutmeggers. Uh, I've been hearing that all my life. I've heard different versions of the legend, and so... My feeling is the state historian gets to decide exactly what the truth is about this. Uh, that, in this case, would be Walt, Walter Woodward. He's on our show a lot. We love to have him on. We accept what he says as gospel, associate professor of history and Connecticut state historian, Walter Woodward. Welcome to a conversation about nutmeg. How are you doing, Colin? Got any nutmeg? Well, you, no, don't eat the purple nutmeg. Uh, that's what yeah. I've been told. I mean, it's your own trip, obviously, <laughs> but I've been told that it's, uh, it's bad. So, um... So we, the nutmeg state, I mean, I know where the land of steady habits and the provision state. I, I've heard a couple of different versions of this nutmeg state thing. What, what's your understanding of it? Well, the nutmeg state is a moniker for Connecticut. goes back to the early republic in the intersection of two archetypal Yankee characters, the Yankee skipper and the Yankee peddler, because in the days of the early republic, Connecticut sailors were going to the Caribbean and taking their Wethersfield onions, which supplied a lot of food for the, uh, for the slave trade in the Sugar Islands. One of the things they would bring back, one of their favorite cargoes, were nutmegs that grew. They only grew in uh, the Bandas Islands over in Indonesia and in Grenada, of all places. So a highly sought-after spice, something that you know, not only made pumpkins taste better, but it could mask uh, the taste of meat that was maybe a little past its best buy date. And they would bring them back because they were light and very profitable. Right. That, so, yeah. So you've got something that is, I don't know, maybe the closest thing to it these days might be saffron or something like that. You've got something that really, because the sources of it are so rare and geographically isolated, uh, and, and the desire for it, the market for it is pretty strong. So you've got something that, I, I don't know, I th when we say nutmeg today, it doesn't sound like much, but it would be, you know, a real valuable thing at this time, right? Yeah, it was a big deal. And that that's why when they would bring it back, it was one of the uh, preferred products of these Connecticut farm farm lads who, after the harvest was in in the fall, they would go pick up uh, pick up their cases and they'd load them with things from the new tinware industries and you know Yankees early manufacturers, and they'd take cans of nutmegs with them. They would go south for the winter door to door. And the Yankee peddlers, one of the things they would peddle very successfully were these little tins of nutmegs. And uh, some of these traders who were, they were great salesmen, but they, you know, weren't exactly the most puritanical of Yankees. They, the story goes, would take, so that in their spare time, they would carve wooden nutmegs and they'd put them in the middle of the tin sell them to their unsuspecting uh, customers, and they'd be back in the land of steady habits before they were ever found out. So, yeah, that's the thing that I had heard, too. And it's so that's disturbing, though. I mean, <laughs> well, it, you know, it is it, it is it actually in the same way that Connecticut's adopted Yankee Doodle as a song, which originally was a song used to ridicule them. Connecticut's embraced this idea of being the nutmeg state. So by the 1830s and 40s, it starts appearing 
regularly as a descriptor of Connecticut. And, uh, you know, most people went along with it, but by late in the century, in the Victorian, at the end of the Victorian era, it was seen by many people, especially Mrs. Emily Holcomb, uh, in, who led the effort to have Connecticut named the Constitution State in 1903. She found it uh, she found it just terrible and led a campaign to have the state formally called the Constitution State. The Hartford Current went along with it, and they told all the people of Connecticut that this is in an editorial. I've got the quotation exactly. It says, do not yourself and do not let others in your presence allude to Connecticut as the nutmeg state. If you continue to do so, they opine that that it is an insult which we give ourselves. The other N-word. Yeah, there um, you go. And so, yeah, so, um, and, and, and nonetheless, there always has been a little, and maybe it's a kind of sly pride in this, right? I mean, ha- wouldn't nutmeg lapel pins a kind of a thing at some point? Well, yeah, I, they're actually at the Connecticut Historical Society, and this is this is one of many variants of this. There is a, uh, a carved, hand-carved wooden nutmeg made from the charter oak, and it has a certificate of authenticity. Men would wear in their lapels, they'd wear wooden nutmegs to show that they were from Connecticut, because part of the, part of the legend wasn't just that these guys were, these Yankee peddlers were uh, tricksters. It was that they were such entertaining salesmen that by the time people found out about it, they just they laughed. They laughed along with the joke. Yeah, it's in some cases, you know, a nutmeg deal that goes bad, though, uh, could be. I think I sort of feel like it should be like in Breaking Bad. You know, they like take a little of the nutmeg, they chop it up, they snort it, they make sure it's actual nutmeg, because like you just get home and it's a piece of wood. Uh, that's gonna be that's gonna be a turmeric. Yeah. That's right. All right. Uh, So listen, Walter Woodward, uh, we wouldn't uh, dream of trying to state a piece of Connecticut history without your help. Thank you so much for getting us started today. Thank you, Con. Can't wait to hear the rest of the show. All right. So we're going to take a little break, and then you're going to hear this story of kind of nutmeg geopolitics, nutmeg uh, geoeconomics. You're going to hear a story that has to do with the acquisition of the island of Manhattan and the role that nutmeg played in it. And you're going to hear a story uh, that's unfortunately pretty dark and tragic. All right, we're back. We're doing a show about nutmeg. You knew sooner or later we'd have to. We'd want to. Part of the reasons is the man who is sitting in the studio with me, Ron Jenkins, professor of theater at Wesleyan University. He's worked with us uh, on uh, other shows. Uh, and he wrote a play called Islands, The Lost History of the Treaty That Changed the World. It was performed in April uh, at Wesleyan University and uh, the Indonesian Consulate in New York City. Uh, and it will also be performed in Indonesia, and then who knows what will happen after that. Could be going to Broadway. I am not throwing away my spice. I don't know. Um, so I joke about this, but uh, this is not a particularly funny story. There's a lot of ways in which this is uh, the saddest kind uh, of story of the imperialistic and colonialistic era. 
Not that that's over either. But Ron, before we even do this, I mean, let's take another moment. Just let's pause uh, over that seed. I guess it's a seed, right? Nutmeg. And um, part of uh, the word, part of the Latin botanical term is myristica, right? Myristica fragrance. So what do we, what do we think we know about that myristica word? Uh, well, it's an interesting word. And as I began researching the play, I, I began looking at that word and saying it over and over and thinking about the possible associations. Of course, fragrance is aroma, aroma of mm. myristica. And then I began thinking, because it's a play where you think about the sounds of words, myristica, mirror, myristica, mystery, myristica, history. Um, and the more I looked into nutmegs and uh, I began to see it as a mirror into the mysteries of history that could somehow give us insight into the mysteries of current events that we are experiencing today. Yes, yeah, and you, you may see uh, a mirror, uh, to use one of Ron's words, between what we talk about uh, in 1667 and some of the things you see today. But so 1667, this is when this treaty uh, that's mentioned in the title happens. What does this treaty do, Ron? Well, this is the treaty um, I discovered when I went to this tiny island of Rune that was exchanged for Manhattan in 1667. This was the treaty uh, in which the Dutch uh, exchanged the island of Manhattan for the island of Rune, this tiny island in the Banda Archipelago and uh, what's now Indonesia, uh, that was the world's only source of nutmeg, the, uh, Rune and the few other islands around it, or volcanic islands where nutmeg originated. Uh, now you can find it in Granada, but back in, six, in the 17th century, it was only in those few islands. And it was worth its weight in gold. So the uh, Europeans who used to get it from uh, Arab traders who didn't tell them where the nutmeg came from uh, spent a lot of time and energy and money looking for the nutmeg. When uh, Columbus was you know, accidentally bumped into America, he was really looking for nutmeg. He was go He was Find, trying to find a route to the Spice Islands. When Magellan sailed around the world, he was looking for, for nutmeg and other spices too. So it really uh, had a huge impact on, uh, on the history of the world as well as having an impact on the fact that we speak English instead of Dutch because the, uh, the Dutch were willing to give up Manhattan in exchange for this island that was so valuable because of its nutmeg. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that is so hard to wrap one's mind around is that, I mean, by the time there was something that you could call global trade, nutmeg was a huge part of it. And it was, despite the fact that it, the source is like this tiny little, I mean, it was a much bigger world then in terms of how hard it was to get places and stuff like that and what you even knew about the, the world, the mapped world. And so the world is barely mapped at all. And literally by medieval times and, and really before medieval times, um, there's trade in this thing that you can only get in this incredibly obscure place, the location of which only a select few people know. I mean, nutmegs mentioned in, in Chaucer. That's why we did the introduction the way we did it. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's this thing people really know about, even though it's so obscure. Uh, it was it was a time in history. Of course, there was no refrigerators, but nutmeg could preserve meats and food, so it became very valuable. It was also before antibiotics, it was it was known as something that could uh, cure injuries and uh, and uh, prevent infections. So it uh, it it was uh, it was very much sought after for all kinds of ailments, from uh, you know liver disease to bad breath. You know, nutmeg could could do it do it all. So this treaty is called the Treaty of Breda. Breda, how do you say? Breda, Breda, Breda was yeah. the, the the town in um, in the Netherlands where. 
the treaty was uh, signed and negotiated at uh, where the uh, the Dutch gave up their claim to the uh, uh, to the to the uh, to the to the island of of uh, Manhattan in exchange for ruin. And it's and if you look at the treaty itself, it's a fascinating document, and you realize how important it was in changing world history. Uh, uh, for many reasons, but one of uh, one of the things that haunted me as I read the treaty, and you alluded to the fact that there was, you know, all kinds of uh, colonial atrocities that took place as the uh, as as the Dutch uh, mined the island or exploited the island for its resources of nutmeg. They massacred the population, they enslaved the population. There were all kinds of awful things done during the wars between the English and the Dutch as they fought over the nutmeg islands. Uh, but one of the things that the treaty says in 1667 is uh, is instructive. It says uh, that all these injuries, offenses, uh, alluding to the murders and the massacres, let's uh, quote, uh, they should be, quote, buried in oblivion and erased from memory as if no such things had ever occurred. Not that you don't sound great saying that, but let's actually hear that set to music from the play. Also, that all offenses, injuries, and losses which either side sustained during this war or at any time be buried in oblivion and completely erased from memory as if no such things had ever occurred. Buried in oblivion, erased from memory as if no such things had ever occurred. I think Lydia Brown and I did a show about historical erasure, uh, but we didn't know about this one. So this is just one of the first offenses here then is just making atrocities go away. Yes, and when and when I read that, it kept uh, haunting me, and I made the treaty itself a character in the play. So the voice that you hear, Connor Aberley, is, plays the role of the treaty. And then the, the indigenous people respond to the treaty, you know, by questioning, what, what do you mean, you know, uh, erased from memories if no such thing happened? They, they did happen. So the, in the play, we have a dialogue between the treaty itself and the people who were impacted by the, by, by the treaty. And then you begin to see that this, you know, as you say, erasing history, uh, erasing history is a running theme, but this is a treaty that institutionalized forgetfulness. And then you begin to see that, you know, that that's a strategy that people who commit atrocities and crimes against humanity often like to use. Let's pretend that it never happened. And then uh, then you think about, uh, you know, our current situation where we have a president who wants to negotiate with uh, with Putin, you know, and just forget about the people that he murdered and, the you know, the, the war crimes that he uh, that he uh, committed, and let's uh, and forget about the things that the president himself said about uh, grabbing women by the private parts. Let's forget these things and just go on. So this idea of institutionalizing forgetfulness is something we live with every day. The the treaty. Do the I mean some treaties kind of represent an, an end to hostilities and violence. Did this treaty do that, or did it kick off another round of imperialism and acquisition? Oh sure, the the it, the, uh, the violence continued, the, the the murders continued. It was the uh, it was the beginning of the Dutch occupation of the islands that eventually became Indonesia, and the Indonesians didn't uh, come out from under that colonial uh, uh, rule until uh, 1949. Uh, so uh, in that in that interim, there were 
you know, all kinds of, of horrible things that happened. I remember in the course of researching the play, I interviewed the uh, uh, former minister of education and culture from, from the Netherlands, and he uh, referred to all the multi-million dollar houses on the beautiful canals of Amsterdam. And he said, you know, those, those houses were built with the money from nutmeg, from the, the money, from, money from nutmeg on Rune Island. And if you go to Rune Island, which I did when I researched the play, uh, people are living in, t- in tin shacks. Right. Uh, so uh, let's uh, treat uh, in more detail of both of those things. Um, let's hear a little bit more from the play. This is a clip. Uh, I think you're going to hear Wesleyan student Connor Aberley playing uh, Nicholas von Wert, uh, a Dutch soldier bothered by the lack of mercy shown to the Indonesian prisoners during this time of occupation. The 44 prisoners were brought inside Fort Nassau. The eight village leaders, the Rankaya, were kept apart. The others were herded together like sheep. A round enclosure bamboo was built just outside the fort, and into it were brought the prisoners, bound tight with cords and surrounded by guards. Their sentence was read out to them for having conspired against the life of Herr General and having broken the terms of the peace. Condemned victims were ordered within the enclosure. Six Japanese soldiers were also ordered inside, and with their sharp swords, they beheaded and quartered the Arunkaya, and then beheaded and quartered the 36 others. This execution was awful to see. The Arunkaya died silently, without uttering a single word, except that one of them, speaking in the Dutch tongue, said, Sirs, if you then know mercy... Um, you know, Ron, it's not, I don't think, a fanciful comparison, and we'll be talking a little bit more in the final segment of the show about um, how nutmeg is understood and treated as a drug in real life. But in, in the context of kind of global economics, it is a little bit like cocaine in the sense that when so- something in small amounts becomes worth enough money, people will start doing all kinds of things to one another. Sure, they would they would do anything for nutmeg. They would kill for nutmeg, and they and they did kill. And it was uh, all the um, uh, it was all under the auspices of the Dutch East Indies Company, which is one of the first multinational uh, corporations in the world. And it was a corporation that really ruled the uh, the economy and the government of the Netherlands, which is one of the huge superpowers of the world at that time. The Dutch and the English were the the two great superpowers, and they uh, and this company that made its fortune in nutmeg, selling it for thousands of times its value on the island, uh, they, they, you know, they ruled the government. They, uh, the executives were the, uh, were the ones who were setting government policy, writing treaties, uh, dispensing justice, uh, uh, appointing go- governors. They, you know, they were in charge. You know, they had made the, you know, one of the, one of the biggest real estate deals in history, in Manhattan for Rune, the the source of uh, nutmeg worth its weight in gold. Right. So, yeah, another kind of Trumpian moment, yes, uh, yes. A, a real estate deal involving Manhattan. But this time, it's the entire island. Maybe nobody quite understands at this point what Manhattan is going to be. But all the same, they're going to feel pretty good about this trade because, in fact, Rune has the nutmeg. Nutmeg is really that valuable. Now, you say uh, you've been to Rune uh, these days. So what's, in general, what's the legacy of all this uh, on this island in Indonesia now? 
Well, what was amazing to me was that the nutmeg farmers that I met there and talked with and who are the source of the play, many of the words you hear in the play are exact transcripts of my interviews with them, they, uh, they know more about the history of nutmeg and its relationship to uh, Connecticut and Manhattan and the United States than we do. You know, there they are in the, in the middle of nowhere in this island that you can only get to by a freight boat to an isolated island and then a fishing boat to another isolated island past a volcano jutting out of the ocean. It's, uh, but they, they know. They have, when I went there, they took me to Manhattan Road. They have Manhattan Road. Wow. You know, and it, and they, it, Manhattan Road is a dirt road. It's the biggest road in the island, but it's a dirt road that goes up to the top of the, uh, of the highest hill where the nutmeg forests still are. And ironically, it's the only place on the island where you can get a cell phone connection at the, <laughs> at the top of, uh, of Manhattan Road. Um, yeah. Well, I would also guess that handled the right way, this might be an example of, I don't know, sustainable farming is not the right word, but this is sort of a type of farming that, if I understand it, you can't really make nutmeg grow any faster or anything like that, right? You just kind of have to hang out there and let the trees do what they do. Yeah, and the nutmeg farmers still do that. The Dutch tried to get the farmers to work harder, and that's one of the reasons they massacred the population, so that they could bring in slaves from other islands who might work harder and uh, and more efficiently. But the nutmeg farmers that are still there, they you know they the eighty two year old nutmeg farmer that I met still goes every morning up Manhattan Road to the you know the highest hills and tends his nutmeg trees and has a, 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 you know, a very intimate relationship with his trees. He yeah, calls he told them his you, children. He told you stories about the trees, right? Sure, yes, yes. And he said you know, he doesn't have a camera. He doesn't have a video recorder. He said, I don't have any of those things. I save all my memories in the trees. And he would go to each tree and he said, this is the tree where uh, the shack was where I was born because he was born when, there was, when it was still the Dutch occupation. And this is the tree where... I met my wife, and this is the tree where, uh, you know, she used to pick the nutmegs that she made my food with, and now she's not here anymore. But when I see this tree, uh, I remember her. You know, I, I taste the food. I remember the taste of the food she made with me with nutmeg, and I remember her. So all his memories are in the trees, and it's a very intimate relationship with the environment. And his thoughts and his words are in your play, uh, pretty much verbatim. Uh, let's hear a Wesleyan student, Manoir Rahman, who plays this man, Kajiri, a nutmeg farmer uh, in the Banda Islands. Uh, and uh, here are his words. One of the lessons from our ancestors is that the nutmeg is the source of our culture. It gives us the food which keeps us alive. It gives us medicine to cure us when we are sick. It gives us the income which pays our children's tuition for school. Without the nutmeg, we would not have a culture. No, without the nutmeg, we would not be alive. This spice is nourished by the volcanoes which get their power from the forest at the center of the earth. This power is passed from the volcanoes to the black soil, to the nutmeg trees, to the bodies of the people that eat it. And that is what we see in the dance. That fiery power that gives us the strength we need to fight back against the invaders. No matter what century they dare come to our shores. So there's a Manhattan uh, Street or a Manhattan Road on this tiny island of Rune. I assume there's no Rune Street in New York City. Well, that's one of the first questions they asked me when they knew that I was from Manhattan. They said, oh, where is Rune Road in Manhattan? I was embarrassed to say, no, we don't have that. We don't even know that we're connected. You know, the sophisticated Manhattanites don't know their connection to Rune the way the, uh, the farmers of Rune know their connection to Manhattan. 
So and, one of our 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 goals is, you know, to convince the uh, the mayor of Manhattan to dedicate an honorary uh, road to Rune. And the uh, the artist Mari Wianta, who first brought me to Rune, has made a giant bronze nutmeg that he's waiting to present to the mayor anytime he's ready. I could see De Blasio going for that. Sure, um, sure. That mayor Bloomberg actually made a proclamation uh, declaring uh, that there was this historic connection between Rune and Manhattan. So that was the first step. So, I mean, obviously the, the lessons of this are the lessons, the painful lessons uh, of colonialism and economic exploitation, very well documented uh, in your play. I have to ask a somewhat more frivolous question, which is, what's it like to eat nutmeg in Rune? Does, like, does it taste better? Does it have, I don't know, what did you, what did you when you were sort of there in Indonesia, so close to the source, what was that like gastronomically? Oh, it did taste much, much better. And, you know, and they will tell you that the nutmeg from Rune is the best nutmeg in the world. Nothing can compare to the nutmeg in Granada, which is transplanted nutmeg. When the English gave up the island, they, uh, they, they took some of the nutmeg trees to break the monopoly of the Dutch. Uh, but the, at the source, the nutmeg tastes delicious. And when we first went there with uh, Mari Wianta and his family, we came across a celebration, a wedding celebration in the street. And they were... They were um, uh, they were a boiling fish stew in a big pot on a fire in the street and seasoning with nutmeg, and it was the one of the most delicious things I've ever tasted in my in my life. And it was right right next to Manhattan Road. So we're talking to Ron Jenkins, uh, whose play is about this uh, trade, about this uh, island of Rune, uh, where the nutmeg came from. Um, as we get ready for our final segment here, we're going to um, play a little bit of music. Um, uh, this is, I believe, we're playing original gamelan music uh, composed by Wesleyan artist in residence. Uh, uh, I am Harjito. Am I saying that correctly? Or yes, and the and the composer of the other music that you heard of the treaty was Neely Bruce. Yeah, Neely Bruce, who of yes. course has also set the Bill of Rights uh, to music. So, um, so this is uh, part of the dance of the nutmeg trees, I think. Today's show was produced by the Betsy Kaplan Clinic for Nutmeg Addiction and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish has a cinnamon monkey on her back, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Art Garfunkel. And now, back to Nutmeg. All right, yes, uh, back to Nutmeg indeed. Uh, in studio with me, Ron Jenkins, professor of theater at Wesleyan University. He wrote a play, Islands, The Lost History of the Treaty that Changed the World, uh, performed uh, at Wesleyan University and at the Indonesian Consulate in New York City. It will be performed 
in Indonesia. Uh, now joining us by phone, uh, Wayne Curtis, the author of And a Bottle of Rum, A History of the New World in Ten Cocktails, uh, and a person who has survived uh, a nutmeg bender, something we encourage you not to try at home or anywhere else. I mean, not, not, not only just not at home. Uh, and Leon Gusso, a medical consultant to the Illinois Poison Center and the editor of the Poison Review Medical Blog, because as much fun as nutmeg is and as delicious as it was for Ron uh, when he was eating it in Indonesia, nutmeg uh, has a downside and a dark side. But um, first of all, um, Leon Gusso, maybe we could just begin with the upside, um, obviously nutmeg is a, a spice that's used to enhance the taste of various things and maybe disguise occasionally the taste of something that's uh, well past its due date. But for a long time, it was also a very valued medicine. What do we know uh, about the medical properties or at least the medical properties ascribed to nutmeg? Yes, uh, nutmeg has been used for to treat various medical conditions down through the centuries. There's probably very little evidence that it has much of a beneficial effect, but it's been used to treat plague and tuberculosis, um, gastrointestinal complaints, and uh, excessive flatulence, uh, also to treat insomnia and as a mood elevator and as an aphrodisiac. Right, and, and an abortifacient under certain circumstances, yes, right? Yes, it, it was uh, widely used to induce abortions. Again, there's a very little evidence that it actually... It works that way. Right. And Ron, when you were uh, in Indonesia, were, were did the people of Rune, did they talk about it medicinally or is it just something that they, they like to eat? Oh, yes. They talk about all the benefits of, of nutmeg, that it can cure all kinds of diseases and but, uh, and at the same time that it gives them the, uh, the, the income that they need to send their kids to school. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the source of many, many things for them, including medicinally. Right. So now we're going to be talking about the fact that there is kind of a belief that it has uh, psychoactive properties, um, that it's part of sort of uh, kind of folk uh, psychopharmacology. So, Leon Gusso, what would nutmeg have in it that would lead us to think that it could be mind-altering? Uh, it has a number of um, ingredients. The most important is meristicin, which comes from the name meristica uh, fra- fragrance, the name of the tree. Mm-hmm. And that is generally believed, but again, this hasn't been completely decoded, but it's generally believed that that's the most active ingredient in uh, nothing. So um, all kinds of people uh, have been trying it, including, I have to know more about this, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, uh, who is, of course, the, the Benedictine abbess and uh, creator of music and all kinds of stuff. But, uh, well, maybe that's how she created the music anyway. She noted the mind-altering effects of nutmeg all the way back in the 12th century. Um, so... Um, Let's uh, talk to Wayne about this a little bit. We're going to come back uh, to Leon, uh, particularly about some of the ways that uh, people have attempted to use nutmeg under confined circumstances. Uh, But Wayne Curtis, you got interested in, well, first of all, explain how you got interested in nutmeg or why. Well, uh, I've been writing a column for the Atlantic magazine on craft cocktails and the resurgence of drinks. And I noticed that a lot more nutmeg was coming back into uh, bars, particularly on punches. And I got curious about it and started doing some research on it. And it got more and more curious the further I got back and started finding out that it did have these uh, psychoactive properties, or at least believed to have these psychoactive properties, and uh, chased that down a bit to see uh, where that would take me. And where did it take you? Uh, took me to sitting in my living room and eating a, about a nutmeg and a half one 
afternoon to see what the effects were, were going to be on that. I did some research. The research I did, I, 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 I found it early back. You mentioned uh, Hildegard of Bingham. Also in uh, I think 1576, there was a case of a woman that became delusional having had 10 or 12 uh, nutmegs. Uh, and it was believed she took those for the to try to induce a miscarriage, uh, and then other other occasional accounts. And then in the 20th century, start seeing it a little bit more. Charlie Parker, the jazz saxophonist, was known to uh, pass nutmeg around to his bandmates. And then in Malcolm X in his autobiography talks about uh, being in prison and where he said there were about a hundred nutmeg men there, and they could get a matchbox full of nutmeg from the kitchen staff uh, and take that. And he so one matchbox full of uh, nutmeg was equal to about three or four reefers uh, by his calculations. So All right. I just became curious about it. Let's hear a clip uh, from the movie uh, Malcolm X. Uh, you'll be hearing Denzel Washington as Malcolm X in Spike Lee's film. This is, in fact, a, a prison scene. I know how you feel. Like you want to lay down and die. I brought you something. It's nutmeg. Put it in the water. You need something to get the monkey off your back. It's not cocaine, but it'll help some. Drink it slow. Stuff is strong. <coughs> so what's your hype, huh? I can show you how to get out of prison. And it's no hype. Yeah, well, talk, Daddy. Yo, I'm listening. Hey, this ain't bad. You got some more? So, um, uh, Leon Gusso, uh, help us out with this. Um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, it actually, it, it, it totally is true that this is mentioned in the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, here's the passage uh, that we were referring to before with Wayne. I first got high in Charlestown on nutmeg. My cellmate was among at least 100 nutmeg men who for money or cigarettes bought from Kitchen worker inmates penning net matchboxes full of stolen nutmeg. I grabbed a box as though it were a pound of heavy drugs, stirred it into a glass of water. A penny matchbook box full of nutmeg had the kick of three or four reefers. Well, Leon Gusso, you're in a unique position to know quite a bit more about this. How, how true is any of this, or is it kind of prison folklore? Um, I, it is used in prisons. The uh, description in the autobiography of Malcolm X is a little atypical in that most uh, people who take nutmeg to get high describe it as an unpleasant experience, and um, they uh, usually don't do it a second time. In fact, William S. Burroughs, the uh, notorious drug-using author of books like Naked Lunch, said he used nutmeg once, and people believe it's probably the only drug he only used once. (laughs) Um, But the um, excessive doses of nutmeg can cause uh, vomiting, um, paranoia, uh, hallucinations, which are often described as unpleasant, and it's followed by a um, two-day hangover with uh, bogginess and flu-like symptoms. So it kind of makes me wonder, Wayne Curtis, I mean, given, first of all, how eager most young people are to have their minds altered in some way and how worried parents tend to be about that, why there's any nutmeg in anybody's kitchen. I guess in 2010 there was a little bit of a scare about this? There was. That cropped up in some news accounts. And I think this happens 
fairly regularly you can find that maybe every five or ten years there'll be a little outbreak of nutmeg overconsumption when um, teenagers or, or <clears throat> that young kids learn about this and decide to try it out for themselves and it ends up with uh, with that sort of vomiting and problems that, that come about. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 it comes around from time to time. So um, we did a whole show on human guinea pigs, Wayne. We didn't know about you at the time. Uh, in 1829, a Czech physiologist named Jan Evangelista again, Perkinje washed down three ground nutmegs with a glass of wine uh, and experienced headaches, nausea, euphoria, and hallucinations that lasted several days. So you sat down in your apartment. I think you said one and a half nutmegs. I don't know how that works out. Uh, that was about, it was about a tablespoon and a half. I okay. I, and I had done the research on it and didn't want to get up into the top toxic level. A lot of what you read is it's like three or four tablespoons before you start feeling a, a overt effect, but I, I just wanted to get a sense of it, so came in a little bit underneath that, but it was definitely, it definitely had an effect. Good. So talk about that effect. What was it like? It was, uh, sort of came in three phases. I think at first there, there was sort of a mental phase, it kicked in about two or three hours, and I seemed to find everything amusing, like sidewalks and squirrels and the word couch. Um, and then uh, that faded fairly quickly, and it became more of a physical thing. And it, you read about accounts of uh, it sort of becoming, make it feel like you were floating. And I did feel a bit of that. I'd walk around the neighborhood, and it, it was definitely uh, sort of hyper-aware of physical movement. And then that faded after a few hours. Uh, and then it was two days of, uh, as he said, like uh, a hangover. <laughs> it just was not a pleasant thing. I uh, just sort of felt like I had a low-grade electric current passing through my, my head for a couple of hours, a couple of days, and I was having trouble performing sentences and words coherently. Um, I definitely would put myself in the category of someone who has done it once but would never be interested in doing it twice. Yeah, so the cost-benefit ratio was not at all right for you. Not at all, um, no. I, I'm also curious, Ron. Uh, in in Indonesia, is you know we we talked about culinary use. We talked about medical use. Is this something they talk about in Indonesia? Well, they don't talk about it, but there is a ceremony in the uh, Banda Islands where they uh, recall the the massacres. They commemorate their ancestors who were killed by the Dutch, and part of that. Uh, ceremony. They wear the the uh, the clothing of the Dutch soldiers. They wear the clothing of the enemies they defeated, and they also go into trance. And it's not clear to me whether nutmeg has a, a role into the trances that occur during that ceremony, but it could be. So one of the things that we don't want to do, obviously, on a show like this one, is to uh, incite or induce anybody to do anything that would be dangerous to them. And so, Leon, give us sort of a sense. I mean, obviously, people are taking toxic, ingesting toxic amounts of all kinds of substances uh, and showing up at poison control centers in all kinds of states of toxicity. Um, give us sort of a sense of where, what your experience has been with nutmeg as a toxin. Yes, we see um, at the Illinois Poison Center relatively few cases of it. There, uh, our group published a 10-year retrospective where they saw about three cases a year, and um, they were uniformly mild toxicity with headache, vomiting, but nothing serious. And uh, the California group published a series of 119 cases. Again, they saw mild toxicity, but... Um, nothing major or uh, certainly no death. And, and so, uh, I don't know, let's say that Wayne had called you up and said, you know, after phases one and two of his trip, and said, I don't feel so good, Leon. What would you have told him to do? 
Um, well, in that case, uh, the best thing is to uh, get checked out in the emergency department. And if, in fact, it's just nutmeg toxicity. The treatment's fairly simple. It's uh, fluids, um, sedatives, and uh, medication to control nausea and vomiting. And although the course can be prolonged for days, that should uh, it should resolve on its own. All right. So anyway, we encourage people uh, to find uh, safer ways to uh, alter their minds if you insist on altering your mind at all. But it's probably this is probably more like a super unpleasant thing that you could do to yourself as opposed to something where you might deeply, deeply harm yourself. But just don't do it anyway. So I want to come back to, uh, Wayne, the path that led you to nutmeg. Um, and that is the fact that it's sort of become newly fashionable uh, in craft cocktails. And stuff. I mean, give us a sense. Like, what? Give us a sense of. I mean, we're not the food schmooze here, but give us a sense of what kinds of things people are are having, uh, putting nutmeg in. It's. Uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't call it new, but definitely would call it a revival because it was pretty common uh, all throughout the colonial era and beyond. Uh, people would have a little bit of nutmeg, and, and, and that would be called for to be scraped onto to punches and things like eggnog, uh, posset, some other drinks that were sort of early uh, uh, English-influenced drinks uh, that made it over to the colonial era. I think I'm, it, it definitely is a, uh, it's a, it's a nice element. I think it's a great thing to come back. I think it adds a little bit of, of gravity and ballast to citrus drinks, and it just is a, it offers a nice aroma. There's very little in the way of taste on it, but a lot of drinking is, uh, is the garnish. Uh, you bring it up to your mouth, take a sip, you get an aroma first, and uh, that's why you put a lemon twist in the martini, and it's, uh, nutmeg serves that purpose as well. It's, it's got a, a great aroma that just blends in nicely with uh, what you're about to sip. So yeah. it's, it's a welcome return. So the, the kind of drink it's going to be in more is what, like kind of a, a, a punch-like a punch. drink? Yeah, yeah. And the, the classic punch is <clears throat> just sour, sweet, strong, and weak. Uh, that was the colonial recipe for it. So just some citrus, some sugar, uh, spirit, and then tea or water or something just to dilute it a little bit, and then uh, nutmeg on top of that. The w- one of the words you often, things you often hear, the etymologies you often hear is the word punch comes from the uh, Hindu word meaning five or five ingredients, and the fifth ingredient was the spice that you would have put on there. There's some question as to whether that's true, but it's a good mnemonic. Um, Leon Gusso, I just want to come back to the thing that we were talking about before, that notion, like even that clip from from Malcolm X and that notion of this uh, having some use in prison. I assume, I, I, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of odd. People are strange about the things that they uh, ingest and how they talk about them. And I suppose, particularly if you're in a situation like prison, I mean, it might be kind of unglamorous and almost a little bit embarrassing to say that you were using nutmeg, of all things, to get high. Yes, well, and uh, in prison, we, we do see a number of unusual ingestions, including some, something called pruno, which is a homemade, uh, a homemade alcohol drink made with fruit, sugar, and uh, sometimes a potato that's uh, put in a plastic bag or a garbage bag and left to ferment for days or weeks. And uh, it's supposed to taste sort of like uh, vomit and... Um, uh, actually, people have gotten botulism because botulism sometimes is in the potato. So, yeah, people will ingest all sorts of things in prison. 
All right. So uh, first of all, I want to thank, uh, I'm going to wrap this thing up here with Ron in just a second, but I want to thank Leon Gusso, uh, medical consultant to the Illinois uh, Prison Poison Center and the um, editor of Poison Review Medical Blog. Uh, Wayne Curtis is the author of And a Bottle of Rum, A History of the New World in Ten Cocktails. He is the man who went on a nutmeg bender and lived to tell the tale. Not that we encourage you to go on a nutmeg bender. So, you know, as we as we wrap up here, Ron, so here's the story of this spice, this seed, this thing that comes from a faraway place. But really, you know, I mean, not even in the Middle Ages, even before that, it's like going all over the world and the Arab world and places like that. They're using it for all kinds of things and medicinal purposes. Um, and then it, it winds up as you've documented, very much wrapped up in the history of colonialism and really the most violent, exploitive, reductive form of colonialism in which a native population is treated pretty much identically to the natural resource that's being reaped out of that that population. Human beings are being treated as savagely as you would grate a, a, a piece of nutmeg against a, a, the side of a grater. Um, and yet it's also kind of the nickname of our state and who we are, and it's also apparently quite delicious. I don't know. How, how, so what's our final relationship? What's your final relationship to? Can you enjoy nutmeg without nutmeg guilt, I guess I'm asking? Um, sure. I think I like to think of nutmeg almost like a Shakespearean character that's full of contradictions, you know, that it's uh, that it has its toxicity. It's certainly the people of the Banda Islands experience that toxicity on an enormous catastrophic scale. Uh, but then it has a power, as the nutmeg farmers told me, the power to kill and the power to heal. And it's somehow connected to that volcanic uh, soil in the Nutmeg Islands, the volcanic soil that has all kinds of energy that gave, that gave birth to the coral reefs that regenerate themselves more quickly than coral reefs anywhere else in the world. So there's something, you know, myristica is also connected to that word mystic. And to me, there's something uh, mystical about the power of nutmegs that can be positive and can be negative. All right. Well, there's something mystical to me about producer Betsy Kaplan, who put this show together. Uh, thanks very much to her. Now I have to look up and see whether Shakespeare ever mentions nutmeg. I would be Ariel, probably giving nutmeg to the still-vexed Bermoothies, or getting it from them, maybe. Anyway, we'll find out. Uh, and meanwhile, thanks to everybody who helped out. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Can I help who's next? Yeah, me. You want to buy nutmeg. Do you have your ID? Oh, no, I forgot it at home. Sorry, no ID, no nutmeg. Can I help who's next?